Welcome to the Like, Bite, and Share podcast, brought to you by Schweiden Sons. Learn the secrets of food and hospitality marketing from some of the best professionals in the food business. Here are your co-hosts, Rev Ciancio from Schweiden Sons and Brad Garoon from BurgerWeekly.com. Hey, Rev. Mr. Brad Garoon, it is a pleasure once again to be with you here on the show. My special burger friend, how are you? You flatter me. Uh, I'm good. How are you? I'm fantastic. I like doing the show. I like talking to you. I like talking to our guests. I like everything about it. Everything about it is good. I like it also very much. Our guest today is going to be cool, but of course, first I want to ask, even though I already know the answer, tell me about a burger you ate recently. 12 patties stacked one on top of another with a slice of cheese in between each and some special sauce, all of which were CAB Prime. It was the Schweidenson's One Percenter. I took some uh, Instagrammers out for uh, Influencer Burger Crawl on Friday, and we ended at Genuine Roadside, which you know I'm a fan of. And I asked them for a special surprise at the end, and they made us basically a three-pound stack burger. It was super fun. We ate it like it was a gyro on a spit. I was taking a knife, cutting off pieces, feeding it to people. I really, really liked it, Brad. I did. Yeah, I didn't want to say this on social media, but I was waiting to say it to you on the podcast. I th- I just think that stuff is so dumb. <laughs> I love the stunt burger. It's so dumb, 12 patties. I, I appreciate at least that you shared it with a lot of people. And I was at the beginning of that crawl, and it was fun in the beginning. I'm sure it was fun all the way throughout. But you ate so many good burgers on that day, and you finished it at a great burger restaurant. And it's just like a mishmash of beef and cheese and a spit. It's like, I don't know. It's, where, where has our integrity gone? Well, I'll tell you this. And we'll, this is definitely a great way to start the show because we'll get into it with our guests. But that, that fo- I posted a photo of that burger on the Schweidenson's account and it got 4,200 likes. Now, to What put- is the point of likes? Uh, well, yes. But since then, we've gained 500 followers. So you can say what a likes mean, but our influence is larger now as an account. And so was the stunt burger worth it? It was definitely fun and people talked about it and we got new followers on our account. So I'm good with it. I'm going to put out there that when I took over the Schweiden Sons account, I got you more new followers than that. That was, that was a fun takeover. Have you uh, put down any good burgers lately? Yes. Yes. In the most unlikely of places, actually. Talk to me. I was, I was at um, a meatpacking restaurant just opened up called Invite Only. Uh, it's funny because I, sa- I went with our buddy Mike Tanzillo, and we were sitting next to Kendra Wilkinson, who people may or may not remember as one of the girlfriends of Hugh Hefner from that reality show. A place where like, that kind of person shows up. Uh, it was pretty empty aside from that. And uh, th- I just hated everything about the look and feel of the place. But then this burger came out, and they call it the Mash Burger. And they blend caramelized onions right into the patty, and they cover it with uh, jalapeno queso, and it comes on a wonderfully made uh, brioche bun. And yet somehow, it tastes like a fancy slider. It's got that slider consistency. It's not made like a slider, and it is not a slider, but it's got that, that thing that you want from a slider, but elevated. And if anyone ever describes it as an elevated slider, I want them to have to use as many words as I just did to describe it. So... <laughs> If you can handle a night out in meatpacking, if you're that kind of person who likes that stuff, then this burger is for you. And if you're like me and it makes you very uncomfortable to be in meatpacking, dare I say it's worth it. Well, then I guess I need to go do it because I like sliders and I like burgers 
I don't know that I like the meat packing district burger. Yeah, let me know when you go. I, I, I'd like to go back and like see if I can handle it. <laughs> well, we have a great show for everybody today. We're going to talk to Jennifer Baum from Bullfrog and Baum. She's a really, really talented and uh, well-known publicist. She's going to give us some great insight on how to handle PR and marketing for the food business. Let's, uh, let's get right into that. I want to welcome Jennifer Baum to the podcast today. Uh, she is the president and founder of Bullfrog and Baum, a New York City-based public relations and marketing company focused primarily on the food and hospitality industry. Uh, they've worked with everyone from Bobby Flay to South Beach Wine and Food Festival to Four Seasons Hotels and Resorts to even one of our former guests here on the podcast, Black Tap Craft Burgers and Beer, plus many, many more. Uh, Jennifer has a past that involves working in restaurants for the U.S. Open. She worked in beauty PR and even marketing for MetLife. Uh, Sixteen years ago this month, she started her own PR firm named after her grandmother's favorite animal, and it's still going strong. Jennifer, congrats on the anniversary. I have a question. Is PR dead? Is that the hard-hitting question at the beginning of the podcast? Signature hard-hitting question at the beginning of the it, podcast. It's not. The short answer is it's not. The longer answer is, first of all, if it were dead, I wouldn't have a business and I wouldn't have any clients. Um, I think it's extraordinarily important for people to have another voice speaking on their behalf. When I explain to potential clients why it's not a bad idea to hire people like us, I often use an example such as this. If I reached out to a writer at the Wall Street Journal and told them, my restaurant is unbelievable, my project is going to be earth-shattering, and my chef is the most talented chef you've ever met, it sounds a little bit different than if a PR agent or a marketing person calls that, that writer or editor at the Wall Street Journal and says, hey, I've got this amazing chef I want to tell you about him or her and tell you what they're doing that's so unique that you should be paying attention to. That's one piece of the puzzle. The other piece of the puzzle is managing image and reputation of our clients. Um, I think that it's very important to have somebody on the outside do such a thing because coming from the outside, it lends a little bit more credibility. It, it takes you a few steps away from being so involved that you're not seeing from a bigger picture point of view and it just adds a different element of um, of language and perspective um, and advice and support. Jennifer, what's the difference between PR and marketing? It's a very good question and whenever I give a class on PR and marketing I speak to this. Um, marketing is actually the overarching umbrella under which things like PR, advertising, events, um, partnerships all fall under. One might say that P PR, public relations, is establishing how one relates to the public through more of an earned media type of scenario than a paid media type of scenario. So for example, if I represented a pasta, a jarred pasta sauce, and I bought an ad in the New York Times and I paid $100,000 for a full page ad that said this is the greatest pasta sauce you have ever tasted in your entire life. That's advertising. I've paid for that. I've researched who's going to read it. I've researched all the different demographics of the publication. But I've paid for it. It's a little in your face. In public relations, and media relations is a piece of public relations, if I develop a relationship with a writer at a major publication and I get them to say, among the best pasta sauces I have ever tasted is brand X, 
that is a third-party endorsement of a product that I didn't necessarily pay for. I earned it by developing a relationship, by, by creating a story for them, and getting them to sign on, which to the reader has a lot more credibility than an in-your-face paid-for ad. You mentioned creating relationships with writers. We, I definitely want to come back and revisit that, but I also want to know how Bullfrog and Bomb came to be founded 16 years ago. It's kind of, so I had worked in beauty PR when I graduated from college. I worked in marketing at MetLife. That was my first job out of college. Um, and I understood how to tell a story, how to take something and make it appealing to others. Um, I left beauty PR and I moved to Philadelphia and I worked actually in the restaurant industry, in restaurants. Um, I was a server and then I was a manager and I came back to New York and was going to start my MBA at NYU and I worked in restaurants before that. Um, I went to business school and I remember it was around the same time that um, Gramercy Tavern was opening and I reached out to Danny Meyer to work with him for free. I offered up my services for free and they said to me, and very intelligently, you get what you pay for, we're going to bring you on and we're going to pay you and whatever it was, an hourly rate. And I went to work for them for a short time while I was in graduate school. And when I was finishing business school, I had two job offers. One was to work for the Bank of New York and one was to go work with Danny Meyer, but I would start as a reservationist and I would make a certain amount of money an hour. And I opted for the job at Bank of New York. And as soon as I accepted that job, I knew that I had made the wrong decision because I knew that the restaurant industry and the hospitality industry was somewhat of a calling. Um, I went to the Bank of New York. I stayed there for about a year. And I left. And I went to work for a company called Arc Restaurants, which was a big restaurant company at the time. And I was there for about three years. I left to go work with a chef named Matthew Kenny, who at the time was developing Metrazor in Grand Central Terminal, which is now where the Apple Store is. And I took a job with him as the Director of Marketing and Business Development. We worked on that project. It ultimately never opened under Matthew. Um, Charlie Palmer actually opened it. I left Matthew, and I took on a couple of consulting projects doing some PR and consulting, and I decided that this is what I wanted to do. And remember, I had done PR and marketing in the beauty industry years before. And I reached out and I, st I started my company with a client that, ironically, um, is a client again in some respects. So my very, very first client was a restaurant that opened on Lower Fifth Avenue. And one of the teams of partners, there were several teams of partners, but one of the teams of partners is the team that is now behind uh, Strategic, so Tao and Strategic, and they are currently a partner again. So I started that company with one client. My second client was a chef named Sarah Moulton, who is still a client to this day, and from there, 16 years ago, um, it was one of these things where we... We didn't necessarily cold call clients. They came to us. Our, our work spoke for itself. And here we are 16 years later. And this is through, you know, after 9-11, I, I thought about giving this up and doing something different. Um, I made it through some not very wise business decisions, and we made it through the recession. And here we are 16 years later. Well, congrats again. Oh, thanks. So 
All right, so traditionally, you know, PR means getting press for the client from newspapers, magazines, radio, TV, more like legacy channels. With a proliferation of blogs, influencers, Instagrammers, you know, recipe writers, and other online and social networks, you know, how has the role of PR changed? So I, to back up, um, I think PR has been misdefined in a lot of or ill-defined or whatever that right word is. Um, it, with regards to the restaurant industry, because when a big corporation thinks about PR, media relations is one piece of the puzzle. But when I started out and we worked with restaurants and chefs, media relations was the only piece of the puzzle. Um, and so we've certainly evolved since then. Um, but to answer your question about blogs, I remember years ago when Eater had kind of first you know, hit the scenes and was writing about all different things, we had an internal policy that we would never respond to bloggers. Because in our minds, and this was back then, it was a long time ago already, you know, they were unedited, um, they, didn't have, they didn't have to adhere to the same journalistic rules, regulations, and integrity as, say, you know, other you know, major publications that had layers and layers of editors had to. And we had an internal um, policy that we would not respond to bloggers. And this was at the beginning of when bloggers started to even come about. And I remember having lunch with a pretty prominent blogger, um, and I, I felt like I was you know, on a blind date. I felt like I was cheating on my husband. It was the strangest feeling, because here we were. We were not supposed to meet with bloggers, and here I am having lunch with one, and talked through a lot of things. And I said, we have this policy, unless there is a, an actual factual error, we don't respond to bloggers. And this person said to me, I think you're making a big mistake. You're going to change your tune on that. And at the time, I, of course, was like, no, absolutely not. We will adhere to that. And now, of course, I know that he was absolutely right because essentially the world was hungry for unedited voices that you know found their place on online, on the Internet, on the web, and were able to establish a group of incredibly loyal followers um, who wanted to hear what they had to say. And so we had to change the way we, we operated. We had to understand that a blogger was somebody with a point of view that, and they were going to openly talk about, they were going to openly put out that point of view and their opinions and people were going to read them and people were going to follow them and there weren't going to be layers of editors and so we had to figure out how to engage this this population of people um, and then blogs started getting bought by by major publications and blogs turned into video blogs and you know then there's the whole social media proliferation after that and so we've had to change how we operate dramatically and even since blogs, now there are online portals for every major publication, and that's a whole different approach as well because there's so much content that they need. They need to remain fresh. We need to make sure that we're speaking the language of, of that short lead online um, writer or editor or photographer or videographer um, because they're speaking to their consumer in a different way. You mentioned it's evolved and evolved to the point that now it, you you have to engage with you didn't say it but I think you were leading at the social media influencer too yeah but do you think that 
since a lot of these influencers, uh, they, they're invited to a restaurant, uh, they come in and they have their meal for free, and then they post about the food or the restaurant without criticism. Is there ever an issue of it seeming disingenuous, like it's advertising more than it's editorial, without being disclosed as such? So, I th and so are we? We're talking about Instagram, right? The medium of the day is Instagram. Right. So, okay. So let's just talk about Instagram because it's more complex to talk across all of the portals, right? So Instagram is one of those those things that we consider a major conundrum. So first of all, yes, at the beginning, people just took pictures, and they had a certain tone in their commentary, and they would get all of these followers. Most of the early Instagrammers who have huge, huge followings, well, I don't want to say most, but many of those influencers can't necessarily tell you why they have so many followers. They just do, whether it's people like their photos or they use a quirky tone in their comments or they have a really great handle that is very searchable. Some are definitely more strategic and some adhere to a specific brand but a lot of them are just people that that are being followed and engaged with a bunch of other young people. Now, I used to think that, and I couldn't put a time frame on this, I'm just going to say I used to think, because I think the, the age of the Instagram influencer is really very young. I used to think that it was crazy that an Instagrammer would post a photo and people would actually go to the restaurant. And I teach a class at ICE, at Institute of Culinary Education, um, on PR and marketing. My new favorite thing to do when I walk in is I ask the um, students, which range in age from 21 to 48, 49, the younger people, but really everybody will mention Instagrammers. They get their information about where to go from Instagram. And I would ask if there were specific people who they followed, and they always had specific people. But I would, just, just so that I fully understood, I would say, so you're telling me that a stranger posts a photo of food from a restaurant and you put it on your list of places to go. And they all said yes. I found that fascinating because it was pretty unsolicited, right? I was just getting general information. None of them mentioned New York Magazine in print. None of them mentioned the Wednesday section of the New York Times. None of them mentioned... Any, they, they talked about Instagram, and so I, you started to have to pay attention. And then we had the director of hers came into our office and spoke about how, how influencers are not just about how many likes they get, but about how much engagement and about how much sharing goes on. So once we saw that it wasn't necessarily about likes, we started to pay attention to those influencers who not only had a lot of likes, but they had a lot of comments, they had a, a lot of reposting, a lot of sharing, and we started to pay closer attention to them. Now, what I think has happened over the year, or year and a half, or two years, it really hasn't been a very long time, is a lot of them do get paid. I mean, we had someone who is considered an influencer working for us, and, you know, we, we got food delivered to us every single day for her to try and post about it. and it was an implied it was implied that you would post about it um, so we started inviting influencers we started hosting specific events just for influencers and 
about six or eight months ago, we actually hosted a group of influencers in our office, and we had an event, and we had kind of a a roundtable. That sounds a lot more formal than it was. It wasn't a roundtable at all, but we had about 15 influencers, and we just wanted to talk to them and ask them, you know, do you feel pressure if somebody invites you to a meal? Do you feel an obligation to post? But we started asking all of these questions, and the information we got from them was very interesting and very valuable. And we actually look at and treat the influencers a little bit differently now. We still include them for sure, but we we do it in a in a different way. Um, we've also established our own, and I use this phrase for lack of a better term, but a rating system where we 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 put, we pull number of you know number of followers, likes, and engagement, and we put it into a formula and come up with a number so we can rate ef effectiveness of an influencer. So then my question is, since you're representing restaurants and when, okay, oh, let me put it this way. I have a, a hamburger blog and I was um, sent a bunch of products, and uh, barbecue items, and the uh, company made sure that I knew that when I post about it, I should disclose that it was a sponsored post. Um, and that was my policy anyway, and it continues to be. But I know that very few of New York's influencers ever disclose that they got their food for free or that they got their product for free. So as someone who represents these restaurants, do you feel a similar obligation to ask that it's disclosed, or is that really something that is just not on the radar of this scene yet? So we don't ask that it's disclosed. Um we don't um, and it's interesting because I wouldn't have necessarily thought about that but you're right what is the difference between me being a major brand sending product to somebody for free and asking them to obviously say they like it because we wouldn't want them to post if they didn't um, there should be disclosure that they haven't been paid for this post with restaurants I think I think it's a it's a very interesting question that you're posing because is it any different than all the years that we've entertained media and they've written about our clients. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the way I've always thought of it is Pete Wells doesn't, he, he tries to keep it under the radar, sure, right? When he oh, comes yeah. into a restaurant. And that's, and part of that is maintaining integrity and anonymity. And that's, so he gets this certain place in the world. And the New York Times pays for his meal, not the restaurant. Even though I was listening to a great old moth podcast where the restaurateur talked about how there's a code now, and they always know when the New York Times <laughs> critics are coming in. But that's yeah. that's sort of a different thing. Yeah, I don't know. I just it's it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. How the reason I think it is people ask me a lot, do you worry that you're getting different treatment than I would get if I came in? And I say no, but in in my mind, I'm like, of course I think that, and I'm happy because I like getting good treatment. Right. But but I don't know if I'm really giving an authentic representation well, of the restaurant. Depends. If you didn't like the meal, would you write about it? it? Almost never. Right. I personally don't think people care to know where to stay away from. I think people want to know where to go. Right. And one would think that we're in the we're in the business of making people happy, not making them unhappy. And exactly. So we want to talk about what's lovely and good and tasty and fun. Obviously, Pete Wells' job is to review either way. Um, and by the way, there are a lot of publications where the writers and the editors do not take anything for free. Um, they do not at all, and then they can do and write whatever it is they want. Um, 
it's an interesting question with with influencers because I also know that a lot of influencers are now paid, and I think you can tell the difference in their posts what if they've been paid or not. Um, the language is a little bit different. You're speaking more in in the the client's language. Um, but but you're right. What is the difference if I invite a group of influencers and we fed them and they post about it to the end user, the consumer who follows this influencer, um, are we deceiving them? I, I like to think that if we presented a bad experience, an influencer wouldn't write about something. I mean, we had an instance where we were working with an influencer. We invited him to an event and he said, look, I don't I don't do this. I don't really post about restaurants. I don't really. But what he did was he did come to the event that we had, and he posted a photo of something he saw on the way to the event that was on brand for him. And he wrote something like, on my way to, um, to check out their new bar menu or something like that. So he did post something for us, but he was adherent to his brand, which I think is important also. Um, it, it's a tough one because I think a lot of influencers now take money for things and they don't disclose it. Jennifer, are digital influencers about to jump the shark? How, how much attention should we really be paying to them and what they're doing? That's such a tough question. Um, I do think that that I do think that on some level they're going to start to be found out. Um, I think if you follow the same influencers, you can almost see a pattern. I mean, I can see a pattern when certain ones are clearly working their way through the client list of a PR firm. Oh, that's interesting that you put it that way. I started um, when I see the same restaurant posted about by all the influencers who obviously went to an event that night. I started collaging the photos and posting them. Oh, really? Yeah, just to point out, well, really, it was just to give people a little bit of crap for the fact that it's like it's obvious to anyone who's paying attention that everyone's at the same event posting about the same thing. And some of, you know, some people, everyone's taking it, I think, with the humor that it's meant to be taken with, but there's also a bit of like, all right, come on, don't be so lazy with how you're posting. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because when we did our event with the Instagrammers, that was the one thing that they said they would prefer not. So we were asking them what their best practice, like we were asking them how would you like us to work with you, right? So it was not only us telling them what we wanted from them, but we wanted to know how they wanted us to work with them. And one of the things they said is that they would prefer not to have an organized event because when they do, then everybody is photographing the same thing. Yeah, but I just don't, I don't see that in practice. No, I don't see it in practice either because there are a couple of things. One, it takes a lot more coordination on the restaurant and PR side to invite people in as individual parties. It's also, you know, it, it's more expensive for the restaurant because now they have to bring an influencer and a guest, right? You're not going to have someone sit at a table by themselves. Um, and it's just harder to coordinate. For sure. Well, I guess this does bring back up the question, what's really the value if... if they're not getting what they want, and nobody can really quantify it. Is it about to jump the shark? I, so that's what I was saying. I do think that, you know, I, I, I have two sides of this. On one hand, yes, I absolutely 
I absolutely think that it's that it it is going to jump the shark, but you may not know this about me. I also believe that print is not dead, and I believe that that you know hard copy things and the printed word are not going away. I actually still read books, so um, I do think that on some level, you know, jumping the shark is a is a a, a it's kind of a big statement, but I do think that people are going to start to pay attention, they're going to start to notice, and they're going to start to say, wait a second, I got, you know, 500 likes on that photo, but it didn't sell anymore. So I think people are paying attention. And I also think that it really depends on what the goals are of the, the restaurant or the product. Um, I mean, anecdotally, I'll tell you, we worked with a consumer goods product and they wanted to do influencer outreach and they gave us a pretty significant budget to work with and we made some suggestions of people that they should pay to um, post photos of certain products and they went with someone who wasn't our first choice but we had put it out there they paid twenty thousand dollars for two Instagram posts and because it was a an online retailer and a, and a specific product, we could see immediate results as to whether anybody bought the item that was posted. And for a, it was either a twenty or thirty thousand dollar investment <clears throat> for these two posts. They sold seven hundred dollars worth of product, which means I think they sold four or five items. Ouch. Yeah, but that so one can say, oh, influencers don't work. Or one can say that was the wrong influencer, or one can say the product was at the wrong time of year. One can say oh, there are a whole boat, there are a whole host of ways one can explain that away. So I think you, I think you're, you, the 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 point we're trying to get here, and, and where, where you're going, and where I'd like to take this, is that any campaign, regardless of Instagram or print, without a attainable goal that makes sense, is just fluff. I, I absolutely believe that. I think that the most important thing, you know, if you were to say to me, what is the most important thing that a PR firm can do for a client? It is to, before you do anything else, to really assess what the goals are of that client. Is If it's a product and you want to sell more of it, if it's a restaurant and you want it to be busier, if it's a chef and you want them to win an award, there are there are steps to take that will work towards achieving that goal and that is everything from yes there should maybe in some cases there should be a really robust um, digital marketing campaign but a digital marketing campaign does not just mean influencers on Instagram it means it means Facebook it means some paid advertising possibly it it's it's across the board maybe it's storytelling on snapchat it's across the board, but if you do not define, and maybe it means I need a feature in the New York Times because that's where our our target market, we've researched and we know that they get their information from the New York Times, well then we need to get a feature in the New York Times. If you don't assess and outline what the goals are of either the overarching client's goals or a specific campaign, you can't define what direction to go in, and not all those directions will include in, an influencer program. Some may, but some may not. I love that you said that because Brad and I wax poetically to each other all the time about how useless likes are. So thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's let's go, let's back down. Let, let's take that to a thirty thousand foot view. When would you say is the right time for like a restaurant or brand to hire a PR or marketing team, 
and what kind of questions should they be asking when they're interviewing them? So I get that question asked a lot, and I'm going to answer it in a way that you may not really want to hear. It, it, there are many different times when it's appropriate to bring on a PR marketing team. Um, and that, again, is it depends on your goals and it depends on your time frame. So I can't tell you how many phone calls I get from a restaurant that will say, I opened a month ago and we're not busy. We want to hire you and we need to make a decision by Friday and it's Wednesday. Um, I can't help somebody there because, you know, yes, you've opened already, so it's not terrible to bring on a PR marketing firm, but we're not going to get into play in two days because we need to assess what's going on. We need to audit what have you already done. Um, who's your target market? Um, and a good PR marketing firm will not just, they really have to dig in and assess there are so many different elements to to what one needs to start a PR marketing campaign. Now, we've been brought on many times in advance of opening um, of a restaurant or a store or in, advance, in, in advance of a launch of a product, and we lay the groundwork. Um, most of the clients we work with don't have huge budgets like consumer products, so we don't have the luxury of six months of due diligence where all you do is get paid to do research. It doesn't work that way. We have to do things simultaneously because there's an expectation that we're going to dive right in, and we do for the most part. Um, but I think, I think, and it sounds a little cart before the horse, but I think a potential client needs to really understand what their goals are before they engage a PR firm. Um, you know, someone may come to us and say, we're a hotel brand and we really want to be thought of as a great restaurant brand because our offerings are above and beyond. Well, we would put together a plan and a campaign to achieve that. Um, and it would be, you know, creating a lot of messaging that talks about these are great restaurants that just happen to be in hotels. They're not great hotel restaurants. It's different language. It's um, changing the language of, of you know, hotel banquets and calling them events. You know, banquet is such a very hotel-y word. Um, it's, it's not using this phrase that we all use, F&B, right? Food and beverage, F&B. We use it all the time. It's very corporate. It's very hotel. It's very corporate. And if we just change that language to the culinary program at our hotel, it, it sends a very different message. And that could either be before a hotel brand launches or it could be a hotel brand that's been around for a hundred years and just wants the message to change. So there are a lot of different times when it makes sense to bring someone on. So let's look at this from the other side then. How can someone spot a bad publicist or a PR firm? Um, so let's put it another way. What's a good way to know when it's time to say goodbye to your firm? That's such a that's a very very, very so I th so there are a couple of ways to answer this. A, a a very well known editor of a very well respected publication once said to me there are only two reasons why a restaurant or hotel changes PR firms. One was they're not paying their bills. The other was their their expectations weren't being managed. He may or may not be right about that. But on the flip side, I think that. Um, we as a PR and marketing firm have a responsibility to our clients to always communicate and it's very important to let people know if we feel there is 
no story to be told and we feel we are tapped out in trying to create the story. And when I say create the story, I don't mean lie. I mean create a reason for either media interest or consumer interest. Um, I think, I mean, there, there are some basic things. If your PR firm lies, if your PR firm doesn't get back to you, if your PR firm you know, doesn't send you reports, whether you like what's in the reports or not, if they're not sending you reports of the work that they've been doing, there's something wrong there. Um, if a PR firm is continuously, now again, this may be all you want, but if they're continuously getting you nothing more than seasonal, what we call seasonal roundups, right? So you're in the holiday roundup and you're in the Father's Day roundup for, you know, and you're in the grilling roundup, but you're not in anything else. Um, if that's not what you've signed on for, it might be time to look elsewhere. Um, I think that if a client and their firm don't see eye to eye on everything, I think it's time to move on. It doesn't mean anybody's good or bad necessarily. It just means that there isn't there isn't a connection. I mean, I'm always amazed when someone calls us and wants to work with us and doesn't want to meet us first. I think that I never can understand that, and we generally wouldn't do that. Um, but I think that, it, you know, I'll give you an example. There was a very, very successful restaurant group. This was many years ago, many years ago. And the owner called me about three weeks after they got a three-star review, and they wanted to talk to us about hiring us. And I said, you know, why do you want to talk to us? You just got a three-star review. And, and the owner said, it was basically, he was saying he's been try, he's, he had worked with his firm for, it was five or six or seven years. He was trying to have a meeting with the head of the firm. It had been over six months, and the head of the firm wouldn't commit. And they weren't seeing eye to eye, and he had great respect for the firm that he had worked with and was friends with the firm that he had worked with, but he wanted a change. And... I got it. You know, we met and we talked and we provided a different perspective and sometimes you just need a fresh set of eyes. Um, and we ended up working with that group for a long time. So Jennifer, I want to I want to round that out. If if somebody is going to interview a PR company, what do you think the top 3 questions they should ask that PR company? I don't think it's actually questions. I think you should have them do something. So we we work with a company that as part of our hiring process, they asked me to, they wanted to see a press release written on something that I said to my point person during this process was not, cons was not pressworthy. And I explained why it wasn't pressworthy and she came back to me and said, it doesn't matter, the owner wants you to write a press release. And I, on one hand I hated every second of it, but in a way, I thought it was kind of brilliant because he, the same way we test potential employees, he didn't ask to see a sample of our writing. I could have sent him 20 samples of writing. He, he presented a scenario and asked me to write this press release, um, and it was a challenge for me, and I actually wrote it, um, and it was a challenge, and it forced me to think differently and think creatively, and we did it, and and it you know during that time I thought it was the most ridiculous thing ever. But in hindsight, I actually think it is a very wise thing for a potential client to do. You know this this particular kind of client. You know they're a big restaurant group. 
um, and he had a very specific he had very specific goals in mind. Um, I think it's really important when you interview a PR firm is to present real scenarios because of course you know we're all look we're in PR I mean I'd like to think I'm very authentic I think I am but we can engage in a conversation and I can tell you what you want to hear in that conversation right you want to know why you should hire me I can give you 20 reasons why you should hire me um, but I actually think it's interesting to present a scenario so this happens how would you handle it or um, what would you do if our first round of reviews came out and they were bad I think that's a good question to ask or I mean there are so many agencies that will get you open and then don't they really don't do much thereafter and that's fine if that's what you've paid them for but how about asking somebody you know three months after we're open what would your approach be I think that's a good question. Well, Jennifer, you have answered our questions on a much higher level than oh. we could have possibly hoped for. <laughs> um, so thank you very much for that. And now we have a few questions for you that I think you're ready for. <laughs> the first one being, what was your favorite hamburger from childhood? Oh, from childhood. Oh, my God, you really want to know this? On my way home from Hebrew school, my mother would take us to Friendly's, and we would have the cheeseburger, and it was served on toast. It wasn't served on a bun, and I have this crazy memory of getting that every week when I had to go to Hebrew school. On my way home from Hebrew school, my mom just yelled at me about the things that I did during Hebrew school. Oh, yeah. Well, I did them, but I didn't get caught. <laughs> I didn't go to Hebrew school and didn't eat it friendly until I was much older. Oh, well, that was – so that – I don't know if that was my favorite burger, but that is, like, such a burger memory for me. But I will tell you this, on the third time I got kicked out of catechism classes for asking questions, uh, my mother said, can you just be quiet and do this for your mother? And that's how I got baptized. Oh, really? <laughs> I was like, look, if God is almighty, how come fill in the blank? And the priest was like, you can't ask that question. And I got kicked out. And my mom said, stop asking questions, and I'll take you for a hamburger. Anyway. So there you go. That's the thing. Oh, and you'll she'll take you for a hamburger. There you go. <laughs> That's funny. Jennifer, what was the last burger you ate? Is that I can't remember the last burger I had. God, that's terrible. But I'm having a I'm having a Memorial Day party and I'm gonna serve the best burgers there because they're gonna be cheeseburgers with American cheese on soft mushy buns. So I'm a fan of the squishy bun. Well that sounds delicious. If you could give one piece of advice to someone in the food marketing business or PR business, what would it be? Eat a lot, cook a lot and do business with a higher level of integrity than you think is necessary. Ooh, I like that answer. I like that answer a lot. Uh, Jennifer, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Really, really insightful. And Brad was not kidding. We, we scratched out a bunch of questions we had written down because you came at us at a much more higher level of strategic uh, position than we thought you would. I'm and sorry. <laughs> no, it's awesome. It made for a great show. Really stoked about it. Jennifer, where can people find out more about you? Um, you can check us out at bullfrogandbaum.com. Um, you have to spell out and because the internet doesn't recognize ampersands or plus signs. Um, and our website is actually in development but is going to be relaunching very soon. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Like, Bite, and Share. We hope you found today's interview insightful. 
If you didn't get a chance to write down everything, no worries. We take the show notes for you. Go to schweidandsons.com slash podcast to find them. If you enjoy the show, we ask for one favor, and that's please give us a rating in iTunes. That helps us to spread the word to others who might find this valuable like you do. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, please subscribe on your favorite podcast player so you don't miss a future episode featuring helpful tips from other professionals in the food marketing business. Stay hungry.